great works of art can be utterly racist because they are expressions of deep racism within the culture. It took me a long time to understand my mission as a writer, besides writing something great, hopefully, was to also contest this deep-seated racism at the heart of the canonical tradition. Hey, it's Joe. And in this week's episode of our show, we revisit a past conversation with Viet Thanh Nguyen. After the fall of Saigon in 1975, Nguyen's family fled to America, where he was separated from his parents at the age of four. He went on to become a writer, and he explored these experiences and more in his short story collection called The Refugees. He's also the writer of the Pulitzer Prize-winning 2015 novel, The Sympathizer. The story takes place in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, and it serves as a re-examination of the American-centric view of the war. Nguyen's work gives voice to a Vietnamese perspective in ways that he said classic American films like Apocalypse Now and Platoon just fall short. And now The Sympathizer is getting the prestige TV treatment from HBO's newly rebranded Max streaming service. The official teaser just dropped, and the miniseries is due to come out sometime next year. Viet Thanh Nguyen speaks to the power of storytelling in a timeless way. So to celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, let's go back to our conversation about cultural legacy, trauma, and the power of art. Thank you, Viet, for coming in. Can you describe the journey that your family had to undertake when South Vietnam fell to the North in 1975? Well, when that happened, uh, we were living in our hometown, which is Ban Mitut, in the central highlands of Vietnam. And in March 1975, it was the first town the communists captured. Uh, and my mom was there, my brother was there, I was there, and our adopted sister. And my dad was in Saigon. So lines of communication were cut off, my mom had to make a life and death decision, and she decided that we were going to flee the town and try to find my father. And she took my brother and me, but left my adopted sister behind. And uh, assuming that we would come back, uh, which was a reasonable assumption during that time, didn't come back for 20 years, or at least my parents didn't come back. So we were separated. My parents were separated from her for 20 years. Well, we made it to this through this perilous trek on foot to Nha Trang, which is a port town, caught a boat to Saigon found my father, and a month later did the same thing all over again when the communists captured Saigon, too. And I think we made it to Guam and then took a flight to um, Pennsylvania, which is where we ended up. What made your family decide to go to Pennsylvania? I don't think we had a choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that time, there were four refugee camps set up in the United States, and I think everybody probably wanted to end up up in, in California at Camp Pendleton, but for whatever reason, we ended up in Harrisburg at Fort Indiantown Gap, and that's where our American lives began. And what was it like for your family to finally go back after 20 years? When they went back, it was early 1990s, and this was right after the United States reestablished relationships with Vietnam. And for whatever reason, my parents didn't invite me to come along. I think I was probably still in school. And I don't know exactly what it is that they saw or what they experienced, but they went back twice in the early 90s. And after the second time, over Thanksgiving, my father said to me, we're Americans now. And they never returned to Vietnam after that. Wow. Why do you think he said that? After the war ended, Vietnam went through a very difficult period um, that was brought about both by communist economic policy, but also by the American embargo. The United States basically continued the Vietnam War by other means. 
Um, and so Vietnam was an isolated, poor country, starving country. Um, in the 1980s, I believe it was the fifth poorest country in the world at that time. It was really devastating. So by the early 1990s, when my parents came back, Vietnam was just starting to come out of that. And the conditions were, st- I, 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 from what I understood, to be still really desperate. And especially if you were overseas Vietnamese, Viet Gieu, and you came back, the perception of your Viet- Vietnamese relatives was that you were rich and they were poor. And people were desperate. And so I think that was what my parents encountered. And I saw a little bit of that when I came back for the first time in 2002. And it can be a very difficult emotional experience, not to mention difficult financial experience for everybody involved. So when you went back in 2002, you visited relatives? I went back in 2002 as a tourist for two weeks at the persuasion of my then-girlfriend, now my wife. I didn't really have any inclination to go. And so we decided to go back as tourists to have fun, to get acclimated to the country. And it was a lot of fun. And then in 2004, we went back for seven months. For me, it was to study Vietnamese. And I spent four months studying Vietnamese formally in order to meet my relatives. And that was when I saw them for the first time. (laughs) Wow. In your short story collection, The Refugees, you have a character named Liem who dreads having to tell his story of leaving Saigon or having to rehearse it, as you write. What did you tell people when you were growing up about this, about the story of your family coming over? Did you tell people this story? I don't think anybody ever asked uh, if we're speaking about people who are not Vietnamese. People who are Vietnamese, who are Vietnamese refugees in the United States, all had the same stories uh, of, a, of a similar kind, right? In order to get to the United States, anybody from Southeast Asia, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Laotian, had to endure something really horrible to get here. And so it was, you know, we talked about that sometimes, but it was very matter of fact because of you know, what we went through was actually not that bad because no one died. When we we left behind an adopted sister, an adopted daughter, but no one died. No one went to prison. My adopted sister had to go work as a so-called youth volunteer to help rebuild the country, which was basically hard labor, but it wasn't prison or re-education camp. So that was a weird experience because uh, this, this trauma that everybody underwent was simply normal in the Vietnamese refugee community. So you didn't really have to explain anything. And people who are not Vietnamese never asked. I think because they just didn't understand. It was a really foreign experience. Americans who knew anything about the Vietnam War knew only the American experience and were focused on that. Vietnamese refugees, the only way that most Americans had uh, a way of making sense of that was through referencing American experience. And so I had no interest in explaining myself to Americans in that way. When did you realize that you wanted to be a writer? I think the first seeds were planted when I was very young. Uh, I loved to read. Um, That was my way of coping with being a refugee. You know, my parents were never at home, and so I read a lot. And uh, in the second or third grade, I had the opportunity to write a book in in class that became Lester the Cat. I drew and illustrated that book, uh, bound it, it won a prize from the public library. And I thought, wow, this is not, this is kind of fun. And so that, that idea was always in my mind. And I think by the time I was in high school, I had some vague idea that I wanted to be a writer. And when I went to college, you know, I told my college classmates, I'm going to, I'm going to, I was 18 years old. I was, I'm going to be a published novelist by the time I'm 25. And they said, wow, that's really impressive. And of course that never happened. I had no idea what it meant to be a writer. But I, I think from an early point, I, I had that fantasy. And it just took a long time for me to develop the ability and the discipline to actually write. Sounds like you were a published writer at a very young age with Lester the Cat. I don't have that book anymore. Oh, wish no. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so if artists and cultural icons serve as a series of windows and mirrors for young people, 
what kind of writers were you reading when you were growing up and or what kind of artists or cultural figures outside of writing were you looking up to and sort of seeing as as potential windows or mirrors for your future when i was growing up in san jose california as a kid and as an adolescent i think i was reading everything i could in the public library so you know the kinds of kids books i was reading were you know what probably what many others were reading you know curious george and things like that um and a lot of science fiction a lot of fantasy so lord of the rings and and mccaffrey's dragon series i mean the whole the whole list of things and so i think just in general the idea of literature as as an escape uh as a magical world of narrative just just captured me in general. And it wasn't really till I got to college that specific kinds of writers really gave me this idea that there was something with writing that could be a mission for me. And before then, again, it was all fantasy. You know, so when I was in high school, I read the Romantic Poets, memorized Romantic poetry so I could try to seduce girls, you know, that kind of thing. But in college, it became much more serious. And that's when I started to read literature by people of color, um, Chicano authors, African-American authors, Asian-American authors. So this is what I encountered in college. You know, people like Toni Morrison and Ralph Ellison, who are major influences on my work, or Maxine Hong Kingston, who was actually my teacher as well. And I was a very bad student in her writing class. But it was writers like this who could clearly connect for me the the beauty of literature and all that it could accomplish in at terms and at the level of, of aesthetic experience, just the pleasure of reading, connecting that with the political and social possibilities of literature to address our difficult histories. It was these writers that really became my inspirations and models. Is there an artist or storyteller from the past two stories you feel have not been given their proper due? That's actually a hard question. I mean, the writers that I've cited, I think, have all been given their their proper due. And then when you look back at these literary traditions, the hard part is trying to figure out who is owed what. So if we speak just about Asian American literature, you know, that's 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 what I did my my dissertation on. I can look back at this tradition. I can name a dozen writers who uh, were really really important to me and completely unknown to anybody who's not a specialist of that literature, okay? And have they been given their proper due in the context of Asian American literature? Yes, people like Carlos Bulosan, who wrote America's in the Heart in 1946, or John Okada, who published Nona Boy in 1956. They are recognized by Asian American readers, but they're not really by the larger American context. So I think they haven't been given their proper due. Someone like me comes along, and uh, even though it's difficult for me or for anybody else to become a writer, I recognize that my possibilities have been shaped by decades of struggle of writers who came before me who had none of the opportunities that I did. So you take someone like John Okada. He came back from World War II. He actually fought in World War II as a Japanese-American, even though his family was imprisoned in a concentration camp, came back, wrote No No Boy, which was the first novel by a Japanese-American to deal with the internment, by anybody to deal with the internment. And that novel immediately disappeared because no one wanted to read it, neither Americans nor Japanese-Americans. That takes a huge amount of guts to do something like that. This is really really before the era of MFA programs or anything like that. If you're a Japanese-American writer now writing about the Japanese-American internment, half a dozen publishers will be interested in your book. 
So that is what I think about when I think about writers who didn't get their due, the difficulties that they faced. They, they faced a completely different world in the 19th and 20th centuries than someone like me or people of my generation have. And so that's why I think it's always crucial, you know, in response to your question, to always bring up these traditions of writers who basically sacrificed themselves for their art you know, and never got compensated, recognized in their own lifetimes the way they should have been. Are there people today that you think aren't getting the type of interest in their work that you think maybe 50 years from now where you think they will be getting that kind of recognition or they should be? I think that's hard to say. I think that now we are living in a very different environment than, let's say, Carlos Bulosan or John Okada was, were in the 1940s and 1950s. I mean, they obviously did eventually get published, and Bulosan actually did get a significant amount of recognition uh, for his work. But then in the, he was a communist, though. Okay, So then in the 1950s, it became unfashionable to be communist, and he got buried, basically. The, today's environment, I think, is, is different uh, because of the mechanisms of publishing and because of the, the changes in our discourse about race and culture and identity, so that it's hard to say that there would be a writer who had something worthwhile to say who wouldn't in, have, have at least the opportunity to be to be heard, to, be, to have his work or her work looked at by an agent or a publisher and so on, because these publishing mechanisms are hungry for anything that constitutes new material, right? So I think that the question of race or ethnicity or culture is not really the one that limits writers' opportunities. I think it's really a question of the aesthetics or the politics of their work. So writers who are really avant-garde, who are really pushing the boundaries in different ways, they, I think, might have a harder time getting, getting published by mainstream press. Or writers whose politics are completely confrontational with American culture would have a hard time. Like, asserting your racial identity is not problematic in the liberal world of publishing. Being a communist is problematic. Advocating for terrorism is problematic, right? There, there are still red lines in our culture that make it very difficult to cross. Now, there may be writers who are doing all those things. I'm not sure who they are. Do you think that there should be a change to the way artists are considered part of the canon? Uh, like, what makes somebody an American master? Or... What makes somebody an American writer or even an American? Well, to answer your first question about what makes someone an American master, I think it is uh, usually a process of consensus after struggle. You know, like someone like Philip, Philip Roth, for example, everybody would call him an, an American master now. His, his period of struggle sort of happened a long time ago in the 1950s when he was emerging and he was a controversial you know, Jewish-American writer. Now he's just an American writer. Now he's just a global writer. You know, I, I went to Paris recently, and in the, the major uh, department store there, in their bookstore, there was a whole table devoted to Philip Roth, right? So he's an American master. Now, whether his legacy will survive, who knows? A hundred years from now, he'll be read in the same way. And so I think that's part of the difficulty. Who we call, who, who we have a consensus about now as an American master may not be the consensus we have from a hundred years ago. The, the struggle will, will continue, right? So that's why it's, I think it's always uh, critical to recognize canonization for the fraught process that it is. It's very difficult in the contemporary moment to, to be sure that who we think will be a part of the canon will be a part of the canon. Norman Mailer, he was an American master 20 years ago. Now his reputation's already sort of in doubt. Who knows what it will be in 50 years. Melville, when he died, nobody thought of him as an American master. It took until the 1920s or 1930s before he became the Herman Melville we know today. So I think uh, uh, as someone like me participating in this series, I have, to be, I have to look at this in a very ironic fashion. You know, this is a very contemporary kind of framing of my work, and I have no 
foolish belief that this would be the same consensus 100 years from now. And part of being an American master, I think, is, as you said, uh, tied into the notion of who we think of as an American. Take the Philip Roth example. In the 1950s, he was Jewish-American. His reputation has changed. The status of people who are Jewish in this country has changed. They've become white for a variety of different kinds of reasons. And I think that's helped, that's helped in the process of canonizing Philip Roth. And he himself was a part of that transformation of Jewish people into white people. Uh, and so likewise, someone like John Okada in the 1950s would not be considered white. He would not even be considered American by a lot of people, even though he was born in the United States. But now we're in a situation in which if you're Japanese-American, you are an American. We have, we've changed. We've struggled. We've fought. And so someone like Julia Tsuka, who, who you know, published in the early 2000s a couple of really great novels about the Japanese-American internment and about Japanese-American culture, she's automatically considered an American writer. Right? So things have changed. And that, that, that is where canonization and the transformation of American culture go hand in hand, right? So that literature can never be divorced from all the social and political struggles that we've had to undergo to contest what it means to be an American and therefore to contest who is allowed into the canon of American culture and can be called an American master. Hmm. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about your experience watching Apocalypse Now when you were a kid? In the early 1980s, uh, my parents brought home a VCR. They were, I think they were actually pioneers uh, in, in terms of this technology, consuming this technology. Uh, and I think after I watched Star Wars a dozen times, uh, I, I, Apocalypse Now was, was one of the first movies that I turned to. And I don't know why. I mean, back in those days, you actually had to go to a video store and rent the videos. There was a limited selection, you know. And I... I don't know even know how I heard about Apocalypse Now, except that I was a already sort of a war junkie at this time, at 10 or 11 years of age. So anything about war interested me, and I sort of, I think, vaguely understood that it was about Vietnam, and I understood that I was from Vietnam. I'm not even sure I'd even seen anything about the Vietnam War yet at that time. And so watching that movie was a really weird experience because my experience of watching war movies had been through watching John Wayne or Audie Murphy and these really highly sanitized versions of World War II, for example. And then here comes this really psychedelic, weird, violent, obscene film. And I think I just wasn't ready for it. I watched it from beginning to end, end, and I understood very little about the beginning and the end, which are very strange. But what I did understand was the middle, which is actually a little bit more conventional. And watching that movie was was a really difficult experience for me because the middle of the movie is all about the American sailors uh, massacring Vietnamese civilians. And I know, in retrospect, obviously, that, that Coppola was doing this in order to exhibit the brutality that was going on and what American sailors were doing and all of that. But from my perspective, as a little kid watching that movie, I was identifying with the American sailors uh, as I would watching a John Wayne movie up until the moment they killed Vietnamese civilians, because at that point I realized I was also a Vietnamese person and that my only role in this movie was to be like those civilians on the boat getting killed. This was my really first moment of real exposure with the depths of American racism. In my own personal life, I had only rarely encountered direct racism to my face. And somehow this moment, even though it wasn't personal. It wasn't like an individual doing this to me. It felt intensely personal because I knew that this was was being directed at me. Not that I think Coppola was doing it on purpose. I think 
the power of racism is such that he didn't have to do it on purpose. The assumption could simply be that Vietnamese people had no speaking role whatsoever in this American imagination. Americans don't think of that as racist, but it is racist. And I think I understood it viscerally and intuitively at that point. And it would take a very long time for me to try to work through it, to understand it, to understand how popular culture can be racist, to understand how narratives can be racist, can be incredibly powerful. You know, I would go back, for example, and I would read, at roughly around you know, a few years later, I, I read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, on which the film was loosely based. I read Chinua Chebe's critique of Heart of Darkness as a racist story. Even if it was aesthetically a masterpiece, for Achebe, it's still a racist story. And I think those two things are utterly compatible. Great works of art can be utterly racist because they are expressions of deep racism within the culture. And so I, it took me a long time to understand, to make sense out of this and to understand that my mission as a writer, besides writing something great, hopefully, was to also contest this deep-seated racism at the heart of the canonical tradition that Apocalypse Now and the Heart of Darkness both represent. And so was this experience really the seedling for what led to The Sympathizer? I think so because, and, but, but it wasn't the only thing. I mean, I think so because from that point onwards, I began to be very interested in the Vietnam War. Um, I read everything I could that was available in the library, which meant reading things that were way beyond my comprehension and my, my ability at 10 or 11 or 12 years of age. I began, and I began to realize that uh, there was very little written or filmed from the perspective of Vietnamese people, whoever they happened to be. And this history that was so important to me was being understood and articulated entirely through the perspective of Americans and mostly of white Americans. And I was an American, but I was not one of those Americans. And th that meant that by the time I got around to writing The Sympathizer, I had spent 30 years thinking about the Vietnam War in one way or another, both as, as someone who was reading books and watching movies for entertainment, but also as a scholar who'd been grappling with it as well. And so, yes, I became a scholar, at least partially, in order to make sense out of these works of art I was, I was confronting and this perception that I saw in the American imagination that, uh, that, that the Vietnam War was, was to be understood purely through the American point of view and that we, the Vietnamese people, who were the ones most affected by the Vietnam War, were to be rendered secondary, if at all rendered, in the American imagination, and that this for me, was something that I really would have to confront, both for myself as a person, but for myself as a writer, because I was an American and yet not an American in this experience. And I wasn't going to let that simply happen without me protesting against it in my own way. Well, The Sympathizer won the Pulitzer in 2016, so it seemed like a very successful protest, at least in terms of getting the kind of cultural recognition that the Pulitzer kind of affords a work of art. American Masters has a film on a fellow Pulitzer winner, Native American writer N. Scott Mamaday. Uh, for him, it was a huge surprise, and for the Native American community, a huge sense of recognition. What was your reaction to winning the Pulitzer, and what was the Vietnamese American community's reaction? My reaction to winning the Pulitzer was pretty much utter shock and astonishment, you know, um, and also filtered into that was this awareness, again, of this process of canonization and what, what an award means and, and all of that. And my, my awareness as a literary scholar that, that awards are not simply given out for some kind of universal idea of literary, literary merit, but they're, they're, they're deeply contextual. So I, I think The Sympathizer is a good novel. Okay, Whether it's a great novel 
time will have to decide that whether it's worthy of the Pulitzer Prize, whether there, whether, whether it was more worthy than any other book published that year. I have, time will have to decide that, right? So, but I think it's a good novel. But what does the Pulitzer recognize? I mean, the Pulitzer is there also to, to, to it's a political, it's it's a, it's a cultural and political function for the Pulitzer as well. So, I think that partly my understanding of the Pulitzer is that it is a recognition of what America has done and what America has not said about the Vietnam War. And giving someone like me the Pulitzer Prize, the odds of that happening were actually pretty good. Maybe not for me, but somebody would, have, would, would come along. This is a mechanism of American society. You know, we're, we're a society based on genocide and conquest and imperialism and slavery and all these kinds of things. And we're also a society that's based on this idea that we are above and beyond all those things. And how we are above and beyond that is that we allow people like me and, and Scott Mahomedy to write novels that get the Pulitzer Prize. That's the conundrum that we're in. And I think that anybody from our traditions who gets the, a prize like this has to be aware of that. You know, we don't win the Pulitzer Prize in order to then keep the Pulitzer Prize for ourselves or whatever literary prize or whatever literary recognition. We don't become American masters simply to say we're the masters of the universe now. You know, no. I mean, I come from a tradition that says you win this prize in order to use this prize in order to bring attention to the very conditions that make this prize a necessity and to grow, to help the other writers other, uh, who are part of this tradition to continue doing this work. That's really crucial. And so that's why I think the Vietnamese-American community responded so positively to this prize, because they recognize that it's not just for me. It's for them, too. Even if most of them had not read the novel, they probably haven't read the novel yet, they recognize that this is a transformation. We can ride on the cultural capital of this to transform what it, what it means when we say we're Vietnamese-Americans. We can now point to this book and say, look, you got to read this book if you want to understand our perspective on the Vietnam War. But it's only the beginning. Because it's really my understanding of the Vietnam War and of Vietnamese history. And there are, there are Vietnamese-American readers who object, who don't agree. You know, and that's perfectly fine. But the, what the Pulitzer Prize should enable is not simply that I should write more books, but that other Vietnamese-American writers should have more opportunities to publish their works and broaden our understanding of this history. What led you to put together the your first short story collection, The Refugees? When I started to think that I could become a writer, this was in college and then in graduate school, and I thought, well, I'm not ready to write a novel yet. So I just write short stories because they're short. So they'll be easier and they'll be a good training ground before I get to the real serious business of writing a novel. And of course, short stories are actually really, really difficult to write. Um, I didn't figure that out until I was in the middle of it. It took 17 years to write that short story collection. And again, the impetus behind it was to write about Vietnamese people, uh, mostly in the United States, but also in Vietnam, and to tell stories that, that were of interest to me. So it was really a haphazard way of, of writing this book. When I was writing it, I mean, I, I didn't have an overarching theme beyond Vietnamese people. And then I think as the book evolved, I began to see that they were about refugees and that if they were about refugees, they were also about haunting and about loss, because that is something that binds all refugees together, Vietnamese and otherwise. And then finally, the last step in writing that book was also to think that I'm also writing a book that I believe is about Vietnamese people and about refugees, but it's also about these universal experiences. They're, they're completely commensurate with each other. And I wanted to demonstrate that I could also write about people who are not 
Vietnamese. So that's why the book has stories about people who are not Vietnamese written from their perspective. And, and that's partially because Vietnamese people don't live their lives simply with Vietnamese people. We interact with everybody else. And the lives of Vietnamese people are completely integrated with these other people. And of course, as a writer, I want to demonstrate that I, that I can do other things besides write about people who are just like me. I can write about anybody. That was partly the ambition in the, in, the, in the refugees, is to tie the lives of Americans and Vietnamese together through this universal experience of refugees and what they brought to the United States and what the United States did to them. Well, I felt like a tremendous amount of empathy when I read the book. And I was really surprised because I, I read that the stories actually came together in piecemeal from over a long period of time but it feels so cohesive. Was there kind of an editing process to make that cohesive feeling, or were these truly just disparate pieces that you chose and collected? Well, I think that the, hopefully if they're cohesive, part of the reason why is that there is at least a certain historical frame for them, the refugee experience. Um, they are unified by these ideas that I that I mentioned about how uh, refugees are bound together by, by haunting and loss, so that those threads run throughout all of the stories and, and give them that, that coherence, even if the stories are all about different uh, individuals who don't actually overlap with each other. And I think that what happened in the process of writing the stories is what happens to every writer. You know, you suffer <laughs> through writing a story through multiple drafts, like one story, the opening story of Black Eyed Women took 50 drafts over 17 years. To the writer, to someone like me, it's a, it's a horrible experience, and it's not a cohesive experience, and you experience a story in fragments. But if you do the job right, at least for a realistic short story, after that process, what the reader encounters is something cohesive. The reader doesn't see all the labor and the suffering, doesn't see the seams in the story, and that's the way it should be for that kind of a short story. So if, in fact, you did experience empathy and, and did experience the collection as something coherent, then I did my job and I didn't expose you to all the nasty kinds of stuff that went on behind the scenes. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between identifying as an immigrant versus identifying as a refugee? Americans think of the United States as a country of immigrants, whether they like it or not, right? But Americans still fundamentally believe that immigration has happened to this country. Some Americans think it's made the country great. Some Americans think it's made the country worse. But immigration is still fundamental. So when a newcomer to the United States or someone who's a newcomer but who's been here for a few decades calls herself or himself an immigrant to other Americans, Americans can immediately make sense out of that, whether they like it or not. A refugee is different because a refugee is actually not a part of the American mythology, is not really a part of the American dream. Americans don't generally think of refugees at all. And when they encounter refugees, they sort of automatically simply subsume the refugee under the general category of the immigrant, which then allows Americans to make sense out of them. Because in the American imagination, immigrants come to this country because of the American dream. America's a great country. The immigrants will come here to try to better themselves. That affirms America to Americans, even if they want to kick those immigrants out or keep them from coming. Refugees have to be subsumed under that category for Americans because it makes that American mythology work. But if you were to actually think about the refugee and why the refugee came to this country, oftentimes it's because of desperate conditions that the United States helped to create. Right? So the Vietnam War, for example, or what's happening south of the border of the United States in terms of drug wars, in terms of American intervention in Central America in the 1980s, these all helped to create refugees. 
But if you call these people refugees, then you have to start thinking about American culpability and American responsibility. And then you think it's easier to call them immigrants or undocumented immigrants in the case of people coming from Guatemala, for example. So that's why it's been important for me to say I'm a refugee and not an immigrant because I don't want to let Americans off the hook by pretending I'm something I'm not. And I want Americans to think about why I'm a refugee, why my family are refugees, why most of the Vietnamese people in this country who are here came as refugees. And I call myself a refugee so that other refugees can hear that happening. Because a lot of refugees, former refugees, simply call themselves immigrants without even really thinking about it. And when I bring it up to them, they said, yeah, I I call myself an immigrant because no one really wants to talk to a refugee or about what a refugee experience is like. It's too uncomfortable. And it's too stigmatizing to call myself a refugee. And so I want to stand up and say, I don't care about the stigma. I want to call myself a refugee so that we can have this conversation about how I happened to come here and how all these Vietnamese refugees happen to be here. Well, thank you so much. You know, I I just, there's one quote from the refugees that really sticks with me because I just can't quite figure it out. It's at the end of Black Eyed Women, one of the stories that you wrote. The character says, stories are just things we fabricate, nothing more. We search for them in a world besides our own, then leave them here to be found. Garments shed by ghosts. What does that mean? I think as a a writer, and I, I struggle constantly with the question of, are stories important? Yeah. I think stories are important. Many people, I think, in this world don't think stories are that important, even if they live with stories all the time. So part of my task as a writer is not simply to say, read literature, it's good for you. Part of my task as a writer is to go out there and say, look, stories are all around us. Make America Great Again is a story, for example. That's a very powerful story, right? Okay, so there's that going on. Um, And so I think a lot of people who don't believe in the power of stories would simply say, stories are just things you guys make up, you writers, for example. They don't really matter. You know, they're just entertainments or they're just fictions. You're just wasting your time. And yet I want to insist that, in fact, yes, we do fabricate stories. We do make up stories. And yet they're really, really crucial. They're really, really powerful. Make America Great Again is a story that is, I think, in fact, haunted by ghosts. Ghosts of the past. I mean, Make America Great Again says, hey, they're all these ghosts of the past for the people who believe in Donald Trump that they believe have been suppressed and they need to come back. And there are all these other ghosts who have been sacrificed to American history that are going to be erased yet again in that narrative. And so for me as a, as a refugee, as a Vietnamese American, there are ghosts that haunt me as well of my past, of history. And one of the reasons I became a writer is because of that haunting, is because of that legacy. And so in that particular story, I wanted to make it literal. It really is about ghosts, but I think being a writer uh, is oftentimes about being haunted by something that's really crucial to us and then trying to turn that somehow into a story that is a fabrication, but it's nevertheless absolutely crucial. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. American Masters Creative Spark is a production of the WNET Group, media made possible by all of you. This episode was produced by me, Joe Skinner. Our executive producer is Michael Cantor. Original music is composed by Hannes Brown. Funding for American Masters Creative Spark was provided by the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation, Taya Pechek Irvolino Foundation, the Anderson Family Fund, Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, and the Philip and Janice Levin Foundation. 
Thanks. <laughs>